Let's have a word of prayer together. I invite you to bow your heads and hearts with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for your wonderful love towards each and every one of us. We thank you especially for this Sabbath day where we can come apart from our labors. We can rest. We can learn from uh, the feet of Jesus. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us today. We, we have uh, some very important things to look at. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us through your word and through history and help us to have a right understanding uh, of, of the things that have happened in the past so they can teach us uh, more and more about thee and thy truth. Father, we pray to, that you will be with those who are on their way to houses of worship today, that uh, you will be with those who couldn't be with us and be very near to them. We pray and lift up uh, Dorothy, Susan's mother, and uh, pray that you be with the doctors and nurses and, and that there will be a good outcome there. We lift up uh, Jerome and his situation with the uh, transportation. We pray that you'll be very near to him and bless him. And uh, Lord, be with us now as we open your word and we, we come to find the origins of uh, this Sunday observance. And uh, may we have a right understanding, lead us into the truth that we may share it with others. Time is short, Father. And we wish to be prepared for Jesus' return. We ask these favors in His blessed name because He is worthy. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I've entitled this particular study, The Origin of Sunday Observance. It's a uh, uh, self-description, you know. <laughs> and uh, we're going to get a little bit of history here. I want I have a lot I could share. I mean, I could be here you know, for hours talking about these things. Uh, but I'll try to get through it uh, and give you uh, the big uh, items of it. Um, upon learning, uh, in my experience, uh, people learning the truth concerning the Sabbath, uh, you know, of the Lord, the true Sabbath, uh, the seventh day of the week, um, they, people will ultimately ask the question, well, if it's, if it's not from the Creator, where did Sunday observance originate? Because a lot of people I run into, and when we talk about the Sabbath, I mean, to it's just a shock to them. They've never thought about it. It's just something they were raised with, most people, and they, they just go through tradition, you know, to, uh, to church on Sunday. And so when they find out, wait a minute, God has an actual day, and the commandment isn't talking about Sunday, why are we meeting on Sunday? Right, I mean, it's a logical next step, isn't it? Uh, because so many people celebrate Sunday as the Lord's Day. And the Bible clearly shows the seventh day to be the true Lord's Day, the Sabbath. And so I don't wish to get heavily into history, but we must learn from the past or we're going uh, to repeat it. And that could cost us eternal life. And so we're going to look at some history here and in the history of mankind. And we're going to look at it from, of course, wanting to know the truth, and we're going to look at it from a biblical perspective. Okay? Not just for history's sake, but from a biblical perspective. In the, the history of mankind, no form of idolatry has been more widely practiced than that of the worship of the sun. It may well be described as universal uh, for there's 
scarcely a nation in which the worship of the sun in some form has not found a place in their culture. In Egypt, the oldest, you could say, one of the oldest nations of historic times under the names of Ra and Osiris with a you know, half a dozen other forms you could find. In Phoenicia, in the land of Canaan, he, the sun worship was under the names of Baal, uh, Melkarth, Shamus, Adonai, Moloch. You've heard of these names. Uh, many other forms. In Syria, Tammuz, Elagabalus. A lot of people have never heard that before. And I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, among the Moabites, under the names of Belpeor, and uh, Kamash, uh, among the Babylonians and Assyrians under the names of Bel and Shamas, uh, among the Medes and Persians and other uh, similar nations. And we're studying prophecy, we understand the Medes and the Persians and their role we're learning about. That in, their, in their culture, they, the name of Ormuz and Mithra, you've heard of Mithra, uh, among the ancient Indians under the name of Mitra, Mithra, or Mithras, uh, in Greece, Adonis, Apollo, Bacchus, Hercules. In uh, Phrygia, under the terms Atis, have you heard of Atis or Attis? Rome, Bacchus again, Apollo, Hercules, and all these places. And under all these forms, the sun was worshipped by all these people around the world. The myth of Hercules alone. Uh, illustrates how widespread the practice of sun worship was. I want to give you some excerpts here. It's from a classic dictionary concerning Hercules. Listen to this. It says, The mythology of Hercules... It, now, everybody's heard of Hercules, haven't they? All right? Okay. The mythology of Hercules... Isn't it interesting? If you know anything about Hercules, he was, he was uh, the offspring of God, a god with a human. So you would call him a demigod in some places, a demigod. And so isn't that interesting? A man-god. But here's what it says. It says, The mythology of Hercules is of a very mixed character in the form in which it has come, come down to us. There is in it the identification of one or more Grecian heroes with Melkarth, the sun god of the Phoenicians. Hence, we find Hercules so frequently represented as the sun god. And his 12 labors regarded as the passage of the sun through the 12 signs of the zodiac. Now, there's a reason why Satan would use these false gods and use the number 12. And put that in the back of your mind. 12 is referenced a lot in the Bible, isn't it? Satan's always trying to counterfeit things. Don't ever forget that. It goes on, it says, Everywhere, in short, where the benefits of the luminary of day are experienced, there we find established the name and worship of a Hercules. Many ages before the period when Alcmena is said to have lived and the pretended Tyrinthian hero to have performed his wonderful exploits, Egypt and Phoenicia, which certainly did not borrow their divinities from Greece, had raised temples to the sun under a name analogous to that of Hercules. 
and had carried his worship to the isle, to Thasus, and to Gades. Here was consecrated a temple to the year and to the months, which divided it into twelve parts. That is, to the twelve labors, again, they're saying, or victories which conducted Hercules to immortality. It is in, in, in what that's referring to is uh, uh, Hercules had to do twelve exploits to become fully God. That's what they're talking about. And so then it's divided up into these zodiac signs, see, as Hercules accomplished each one of those tasks. I mean, there's even movies about it. You know, the exploits of Hercules and the tasks that he performed. You know, he had to go destroy this monster, or he had to go do the, you know. <clears throat> and that's, that's essentially what they're talking about. It's under the name of Hercules, or the god clothed with the mantle of stars, that the poet Nonus designates the sun, adored by the Tyrians of Tyre. We find that in the Bible, don't we? He is the same God, observes the poet, whom different nations adore under a multitude of different names. Belus on the bank of the Euphrates, Ammon in Libya, Apis, you've heard of Apis? Apis, and you'll find a lot in these false gods, there would be a bull that was used. Apis was the symbol of a bull. Um, Apis in Memphis, Saturn in Arabia, and the interesting thing, a side note here about Arabia is that, uh, and sun worship in Arabia, um, and also the moon god in Arabia, um, it continued uh, till the rise of Muhammad. And the father of Muhammad, if you do some research, you find that the father of Muhammad, when he was a boy, uh, was devoted as a sacrifice to the sun god. But then he was ransomed. Somebody paid a ransom to keep him from being sacrificed. And uh, But if you read in, uh, um, for example, if you go to Gibbon's book, The, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, in, in the early parts of, of uh, uh, the very first volume in chapter 1, you can read some excerpts that he talks about uh, what Rome did in Arabia and this sun worship that they had brought in. And uh, Muhammad, he, uh, he saw all the horrors of that growing up, see. He became a, actually a, an orphan. And uh, so in his rise, supposedly, see, he was visited by Gabriel. You know anything about Muhammad? Have you done any reading? supposedly Gabriel came and visited him and gave him the truths, see, and he started Islam. And Islam was against the worship of the sun. And it traces back to a lot of his history and growing up and seeing these atrocities that the Romans and, and these other cultures brought in. So it's interesting, you know, Saturn in Arabia, you think of uh, today, you think of sun worship and you don't think of Islam because they're so against it. But they're like backdoor sun worshippers. They just don't realize it, you know, or maybe they do. But uh, anyway, Muhammad wound up uh, through these, you know, deceptions 
and I won't go any further into that, but he, he turned Arabia basically into an Islamic region and not so much the worship of the sun. Um, Hercules is known as Jupiter in Assyria, uh, Serapis in Egypt, Helios, you've heard of Helios, you know, among the Babylonians, Apollo in Delphi, and on and on and on. The, the, they're basically all these different names for the same false god and the same worship of the sun. And so by whatever name or under whatever form the sun was worshipped, there was always a, a female divinity associated with it. Always. You find it throughout all these finds in archaeology. Um, sometimes this female was the moon. Sometimes it was the earth. You ever hear of Mother Nature? This is where it comes from. Um, sometimes the atmosphere. At other times, simply just the female principle in in nature. In other forms, it was the idea of a male and female that were blended into one, uh, as in the case of Balaam. Uh, the female sometimes appeared as the wife of the one with whom she was worshipped. Sometimes as both the sister and the wife, uh, as in the case of Osiris. Uh, yet again, as the wife of some other god, and often not exactly as a wife at all, but simply as a female associate. But you will find that there was always a female divinity along with the god. With Osiris was associated, as examples I'll tell you, Isis. Um, With Baal, you had Ashtaroth or Astart, which we know as what? Easter. Uh, With Baal, you had Mylitta. With Shamas, you had Anunit. Uh, With Adonis, you had Venus. Uh, with Hercules, you had Omphile. Most people don't know that. He had, that was the female that was associated with Hercules. With Apollo, you had Diana. You read what uh, Paul talks about when he went into you know, Greece and throughout these cities in Athens and such. They worshipped Diana or they worshipped Apollo, right? Um, with Adis, you had Sibylle. Uh, sometimes they were worshipped in the images of the male and female human figure. Sometimes in the form, though, of a bull and a heifer. As in Osiris, definitely, and Isis. They were a bull and heifer. You would see that. Sometimes in the form in which the human and the beast were blended. And this is where some people think, oh, humans were uh, amalgamated with animals. You have the, oh gosh, what's his name? Oh, I can't think of his name now. Just lost it. Uh, where it's the, the man and the horse. Sagittarius. Well, that's another name for it, yeah. But, you, you know, that's where that comes from. Um, <clears throat> but mostly you'll find them, uh, well, sometimes you'll see them carved into discs for the male and a piece of carved wood for the female. Uh, as in some forms of Bela and Easter, Astart, sometimes in the form of stones which had fallen from heaven, you know, but mostly in the form of cones or, or obelisks, which they themselves had shaped to represent the male and of the other shapes to represent the female. You know, you'll see the horns above them and there's this obelisk disc between them. What do you think that represented? It represented the sun. Um, in fact, the obelisk, um, or they call it Cleopatra's needle, 
is one of those stone sun images and you find it in Central Park in New York City. So you can find it. You, you actually find these kinds of images throughout the entire world. Recently, and when I say recently, within the last 20 years, they found some of these things in South America. In the jungles, where there's no one, supposedly. You know. And yet, in unison with all these, the sun itself was worshipped. Especially at its rising. Uh, by a bow or they would prostrate or um, kissing of the hand. Did you know that was uh, related to sun worship? It's a form of worship. They come and they take the hand of the Pope and kiss it or kiss his feet. That's a form of worship. Um, In none of these forms though, not even in the, the naked shining sun itself was it the literal object that was worshipped, but certain functions or powers, see, of which these were but they were representatives, like the golden calf. They weren't worshipping an actual calf. It represented something, see. And, and, uh, and so it was observed that the sun, you see, what will people say, well, why? Why, why would they worship the sun? Well, they observed that the sun, in cooperation with the earth and the atmosphere, which gave rain, it caused all the manner of verdure to spring forth and bear fruit. See? It was held that the sun was the supreme power then, the mighty author of fruitfulness, and that the greatest and most glorious manifestation and, and exertion of his powers were employed in reproduction, in fertility. And so sun worship was therefore nothing more nor less than the worship of the principle of reproduction in man and in nature. And there's a reason for that. That's greater than what most human beings would see. They'd say, oh, every time the sun comes out this time of year, he's reborn in springtime. You know, this is some of the origins of Easter, Ashtar, those... uh, those uh, uh, false worships, it was all based upon reproduction and fertility. And who was the source of all that? That big orb up in the sky. See? And so, um, as the influence of the real sun was extended over and through all nature, so this principle was extended through all worship. And this is a key. Not only did they see that when the sun came out, you know, in, in the springtime and they saw all this growth and they thought of reproduction and fertility, that in itself became a part of the worship of the sun. Reproduction and fertility rights. That's why. In an article about Christianity of all things, from the Encyclopedia. This was an old Encyclopedia Britannica. I want you to notice what it says. It says, All paganism is at bottom a worship of nature in some form or other. And in all pagan religions, the deepest and most awe-inspiring attribute of nature was its power of reproduction. The mystery... Now, that's an interesting word. I'll get to, hopefully, if I remember, 
in a few moments. The mystery of birth and becoming and becoming something, you know, birth and becoming was the deepest mystery of nature. It lay at the root of all thoughtful paganism and appeared in various forms, some of a more innocent, others of a most debasing type. To ancient pagan thinkers, as well as to modern men of science, the key to the hidden secret of the origin and preservation of the universe lay in the mystery of sex. Two energies or agents, one an active and one a generative, other a feminine, passive, and susceptible one, were everywhere thought to combine for creative purposes. And heaven and earth, sun and moon, day and night, were believed to cooperate to the production of being. Upon some such basis as this rested almost all the polytheistic worship of the old civilization, and to it may be traced back by a stage the separation of divinity into male and female gods. The deification of distinct powers of nature, you know, Mother Nature, right? Um, and the, you know, fire, wind, there were gods for fire, gods for wind, God for all these elements of nature. Um, and the idealization of man's own faculties, desires, and lusts, where every power of his understanding was embodied as an object of adoration, and every impulse of his will became an incarnation of deity. So, sex was a major part of worshiping the sun. And as the whole particular pagan culture were sun worshipers, Sex and reproduction was seen in everything. Everywhere in the culture. They were a very religious people. <laughs> so sex being considered a part of worship, you saw it everywhere you went. Oh, they're just worshiping. They're worshiping who? They're worshiping the sun. And I'll tell you, friends... There are a whole lot of sun worshipers today that don't know that they are worshiping these false gods by their lasciviousness and promiscuity. Actually, who are they worshiping? They're worshiping Satan, really, aren't they? And demons. So, knowing this and understanding it, at least to some degree, uh, prostitution then you'll come to understand the prostitution was one of the chief characteristics of sun worship wherever you found sun worship. As a, the association of a female without reference to relationship, in other words, it didn't matter she was married, not married, single, virgin, didn't matter, uh, was the only requirement necessary to worship. The result was a perfect confusion then of relationships among worshipers. Even to the, uh, the interchange of garments. And this is something that Deb and I were talking about on the way down here. The interchange of garments between the sexes. It represents something. See? People will say, oh yeah, they dressing up, the man's dressing up as a woman just to be funny or whatever. This has great implications. There was an origin of it and a reason for it. And people don't think anything about it today. 
but it's very significant. In the 18th chapter of Leviticus, there's a record of such a result among the sun worshippers of the land of Canaan uh, uh, that the Lord caused to be blotted from the earth because of it. It's very serious. Yet we think it's nothing today. And, and Deb and I were discussing it. It's because we're, we're born in a particular culture that we, we don't see, because we've been raised with it, we don't see any evil with it or we're just indifferent to it. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in to show us plainly as we grow closer to the Lord, as Bill said earlier, with charity, the fruit of the Spirit, we begin to see how God sees its abhorrence because it mocks God. You see, friends, it mocks Him. And that's what Satan does. He mocks God. And so then you, that's why you find the prohibition in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5. You know what it says? It says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. It was aimed directly at this practice of exchanging identities by exchanging garments in sun worship. Because it all had to do with worship. The worship of this false god, the sun. What do we see happening in our culture today concerning gender, gender identity? Do you know that it has its origins in sun worship? It's amazing. As you go back and you look at history, it, it, just like I said earlier, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. And it has some serious implications. Oh, they just need to be themselves. You don't know exactly what you're talking about. You don't know the source of this. The source is demonic. The sacrifice of virginity was the most acceptable offering that ever could be made in the worship of the Son. We've seen movies in the past of who was always sacrificed. It was what? A virgin. There's a reason for that. Because they, you know, we, you go into to, uh, Revelation and it talks about virgins, doesn't it? For they are virgins. There's reasons for that. It's a symbol of purity. Well, Satan wants to defile the purity. And that's why you have the sacrifice of these virgins, the most acceptable offering to the sun god that you could ever find. In fact, until this sacrifice had been made, no other offering really was acceptable. Let me read you something. The ancient writer Herodotus saw the manner of worship at uh, Bel and Melita in Babylon, and that's the, the, the sun god and the moon goddess. Notice what he says. He says, The Babylonians have one most shameful custom. Every woman born in the country, must once in her life go and sit down in the precinct of Venus and there consort with a stranger. Now what he means by consort is intercourse with a stranger. She was to prostitute herself in homage to the sun god, Bel. Every woman 
You get the implications of that? You couldn't leave. If you worship the sun, and every woman would do it because it was their religion. It was their practice of worship. The ultimate practice of worship to their God. Baal Peor. Have you heard of Baal Peor? Baal Peor, by whose shameful worship Balaam succeeded in bringing evil upon Israel when he failed in his own efforts. He tried to curse them, didn't he? Uh, was the God which in Moab presided over such characteristics here that Herodotus uh, described that was going on in Babylon. In Greece and Rome, the worship was through Bacchus, uh, Hercules, Apollo, we've talked about before, and it was more in the form of festivals. Now these festivals were often called, and if you come across this in history, they were often called mysteries. You ever run into that and you say, oh, the mysteries of this. Even in the Catholic Church, they'll say the mysteries of this and the mysteries of that. You know what they're talking about when they say that? They're talking about these festivals that were celebrated with obscene symbols and in terrible, lascivious rites. And they were, they were only done in the association with those who were initiated into the cult or religion. Secret societies, mysteries, and the mysteries of life, mysteries of reproduction, mysteries, you see. The worship of the uh, Phrygian Sibylle and Aetis was common in Greece 500 years before Christ. It was introduced into Rome in 547 B.C. When an embassy was sent to the king of Pergamos to ask the stone which represented Sibylle, He asked for that, which was said to have fallen from heaven again. It's interesting. All these things that fall from heaven, they're considered coming from the gods. See? The king gave up the stone, which was taken to Rome. A temple was built and a festival established in her honor, Sibylle. The festival was called Magalicia and was celebrated annually every year in the early part of April and is described like this. This is again from the classic dictionary and it was under an article about Sibylle. It says, like Asiatic worship in general, that of Sibylle was enthusiastic. Her priests named Galli and Corbantes ran about with dreadful cries and howlings beating on timbrels, clashing cymbals, sounding pipes, and cutting their flesh with knives. Have you seen anything similar to that that happens in the world today? You see a lot in the Middle East. This is a worship of the female deity, which can be associated with the Queen of Heaven. In Rome and Italy, from the the book a book one of the history of Rome. It says, the worship of Hercules was from an early date among the most widely diffused. He was, to use the words of an ancient author, adored in every hamlet of Italy and altars were everywhere erected to him in the streets of the cities and along the country roads. And I, I wanted to add that because to show the widespread, when we talk about Hercules, you're talking about the worship of the sun. And where was it? All through Italy, everywhere. And with it came 
these rights of reproduction and fertility and and you know you talk about uh, I hate to even bring it up orgies and prostitution I mean the temples had temple prostitutes because we have to kind of Gosh, I hate to do it. You have to kind of put yourself in their mindset when you realize and you actually believe that the the act of reproduction was one of the greatest forms of worship, see, to your God. Well, you, because for one thing, it brought a lot of pleasure, carnally speaking, right? And so you would praise your God for that. And so you would do it, and it was in worship to Him. You'd be doing it, you'd be worshiping all the time, wouldn't you? You wonder why all these cultures in Rome and Greek had all, they were debased? Now there was a real underlying reason for this. Not just because, oh yeah, the sun, there's reproduction and you see all these things. No, I don't get to that in just a minute. But the, the almost numberless forms of sun worship were practiced in Canaan. When's the last time you've read the Old Testament? When's the last time you've gone through and read Second Chronicles and the first and second Chronicles and Kings and, and Deuteronomy and get into those and see what the culture was that they were going into? This is it. Now, we didn't experience it in that form, but let me tell you, it's not dead. It's alive all around us today. But in the practice of these abominations, they had so corrupted themselves that in the expressive figure of the Scripture here, the very earth, God says, had grown so sick that it was compelled to vomit out the inhabitants. That's how God saw it. In fact, in Leviticus 18.25 says, And the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. That's strong language. All of this practice, all of these things, the God of heaven taught his people to renounce. In Leviticus 18 Verses 26 to 30, he says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation or any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done which were before you, and the land is defiled. Even the land is defiled. That the land spew not you out also when you when ye defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them, shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore shall ye keep mine ordinance, that ye commit not any one of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that ye defile not yourselves therein. I am the Lord your God. In all these prohibitions... The people were taught to shun as the, a plague, virtually, that it was. Uh, every suggestion of the evil influences of the worship of the sun. They were to break down all the sun images. They were to destroy all the groves. You know what the groves was? When you read in the Old Testament, they talk about this grove was made, that grove. 
That was where they actually performed the sexual acts. It was a garden. They'd go out of the temple, even sometimes in the temple, there was a garden. They would go out into the hedges and stuff of the temple and they would have these, they would have sex in worship to the sun god. That's what they represent. And, the, and these groves were in different forms that represented the reproductive organs of the male and the female. The way they designed these gardens. That was this culture. And so God would, God, of course, condemned it as an abomination. And so he would have them, his people, tear down and destroy these images of the sun and these, these obelisks and these stones and, and, and all these groves. They would rip them up, tear them out of the ground so that they wouldn't be found anywhere in all the land which the Lord had given them. And you can read about that all through the Old Testament. You can read it. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. We have them as an example. And so the warning to Christians to learn the lesson of Israel's wilderness experience is appropriate, I think, in the light of the soon coming of Christ. Many of the Israelites perished when they had almost completed the journey to Canaan. They didn't get into the promised land. They were the people whom God had especially favored by giving them knowledge of what? His law, right? And of himself, beyond any knowledge possessed by any other people. They knew more about God than anybody. And yet they failed to maintain their loyalty to him on the edges of the promised land. Friends, we are on the edges of the promised land. So these stories are for our benefit. And as Paul says, we're to learn from them. And throughout these pages, we see that it is a record of the fidelity and the apostasy of God's people throughout the ages. And over and over again, we find a reoccurring theme concerning the worship of God's people when in apostasy. There is a definite theme. There's a thread. And what exactly is this theme when men turn from worshiping the true God? In Deuteronomy chapter 17, and I'm going to just start moving fast because I have so much to share with you. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 2 says, If there be found among you within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman, that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods, and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which they did, they worshipped all these planets. You had greater gods and you had lesser gods. He says, which I have not commanded, and it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then shalt thou bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. This is very serious stuff. There was a death penalty involved in it. And so we see that men began to worship what? They began to worship the created more than the creator. That's the theme. 
They worship the sun, the moon, and the planets. The primary, in many ways, the worst form of idolatry was the worship of those heavenly bodies, especially the worship of the sun. And we see this over and over throughout the history of God's people. When they ceased the worship of the Creator, they would worship the sun with all of its its carnal and filthy lusts that were involved with it. In Numbers 25, verse 1 says, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Shittim was in the, the plains of Moab. Very near the promised land. And it was here that the Moabite women, they seduced Israel into committing whoredom. Now remember, sun worship is tied in with what? The fertility rites and rituals, meaning sexual perversions and sins. And so friends, I want to ask you to turn your thinking caps on high as we study this out, just in case they aren't. And really think about what this means for us today. God created man and woman, right? He created man and woman. And for their greatest benefit, He also created the Sabbath. It's for their greatest benefit. And He also created another thing, marriage. Okay? Two great institutions that go all the way back to the beginning of the world. Now, considering that, what are the two greatest attacks upon these institutions? Sun worship attacks both of these institutions in that it replaces the day that God created as holy and, it, and also the holy matrimony of marriage with sexual immorality as a form of worship. Can you see that? And these attacks are threaded throughout all societies in the world today. The daughters of Moab seduced Israel into committing whoredom. Literal whoredom. Well, first of all, what is whoredom? What is it when you say a whore? What is a whore? It's a prostitute, right? Someone who prostitutes themselves sexually. And it can be a man or a woman. Literal whoredom was followed by its spiritual counterpart, which is the worship of idols. Participation in the sacrificial feasts in honor of heathen gods was a natural sequel to literal whoredom. And so in eating of the sacrificial meal... And bowing down to the heathen god Baal, Israel proclaimed themselves to be his followers. From uh, McClintock and Strong Cyclopedia of Biblical Theological, blah, 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 blah. It's an article about sun worship. He says, The worship of the great orb which ensures to us light, warmth, and life is as ancient as history. Well, yeah, duh. (laughs) God created the sun, didn't he? 
It existed in the earliest ages among the Phoenicians, Egyptians, Persians, and Hindus, and later among the Greeks and Romans of the West, venerating its object under the different names of Helios or Saul, or Baal, Osiris or Mithras. So when we talk about Baal, Peor, what are we talking about? We're talking about sun worship, aren't we? So Israel had joined themselves or began worshiping the sun god Baal there at Peor at the edge of the promised land. Friends, we are on the verge of the promised land right now. So is it any wonder that this same false worship and sexual sins are tempting God's people today? In such a magnitude that you probably haven't seen since that time? It's incredible. And how did the Lord react to this worship of the sun by the Israelites? Brought a plague upon the people, didn't he? In Numbers 25, verse 4, he says, the Lord said to Moses, take all the heads of the people, these people who were guilty of it, take all their heads and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. He was really setting an example, wasn't he? Now, as I asked before, who was really being worshipped in all this heathen worship? Was it really the sun? Deuteronomy 32, verse 16. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God. To gods whom they knew not. To new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. They were actually worshiping devils. And nothing has changed today, friends. Nothing. Those who worship the created more than the creator are giving homage to that created being who fell from grace, convinced a third of the angels to rebel with him. Now, why does he want worship? In, in Isaiah 14, we've read before, verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? which did weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. This this is interesting why he says this. In the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Here Isaiah, and you, you read about this, he's using the king of Babylon as a figure. In describing Lucifer. Lucifer aspired to sit also upon the mount of the congregation. But God would cast him out of the mountain of God. Now the king of Babylon, he was a heathen. <laughs> and in heathen mythology, the, the gods held their council meetings on a high mountain. And where they determined essentially the affairs of the earth. See? And the literal king of Babylon would thus presume to usurp the control of the gods, that is, the supreme authority over the affairs of the earth. That's why he says that. That's why it's described that way. The king of mystical Babylon is Satan. He would similarly aspire to control the councils of heaven, to rule the universe of God. Lucifer aspired to be like God in position, in power, in glory, but not in character. He desired for himself the homage that the angelic host gave to God. Only a created being 
That's what he was, wasn't he? He sought honor due alone to the Creator. Instead of seeking to make God supreme in the affections of the angelic host, he sought for himself first place in those affections. So at creation, the Lord created a day to be with us. He didn't have to. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about that? God didn't have to create a Sabbath day. He's the creator. He can do whatever he wants. But he did. He created a day to be with us. We could have just as well had you know, a six-day week instead of seven. But the Lord created a day. He created a day. That's interesting when you think about it. When you think about time and you think about each day, each day is a day. It's just a day. But God created every one of them and then He created a seventh day. That's where we get the weekly cycle. Nobody else can answer where did the weekly cycle come from. Only the Bible has the answer. Do you know that? God created it. But He created a day, the seventh day, and He set it aside for holy use, a special day to be with us. Satan, always the counterfeiter, wants our worship. And so he has chosen a day of the week because he's not a creator, you see. He can't create a day. He has to choose one (laughs) that's already been created. He can't create one. But he has chosen a day of the week as his holy day and he attempts to trick us and deceive us into believing that his day is actually the day that we're to keep holy. And if he can do that, friends, and he has millions already, he will receive the homage that's meant for the Creator. And just as the Israelites ate at that feast with the Moabite women, they committed whoredom with them and they bowed down to Baal so do those who worship on Sunday pay homage to Satan in the form of Baal. They just don't realize it. And this is so important to understand, beloved. This is the power that deceit wields upon the mind. The Jews were deceived into thinking that they were doing God a supreme service when they nailed His Son to the cross. But were they really doing God's will? No. We need to adhere to the Word of God implicitly or we're going to be deceived as well. And I don't want to be tricked by the devil and I don't want you to be either. The Bible's our only safeguard, amen? So what day do you suppose the devil chose as his day? What day is dedicated to sun worship? Webster's Dictionary gives this definition for Sunday. Sunday... So-called because this day was anciently dedicated to the sun or to its worship. Pretty simple, isn't it? Prophecy declares that the ultimate battle comes down to, as we're learning in our prophecy studies, the ultimate battle comes down to loyalty. Who are you going to be loyal to? The creator or the created? What day we choose to worship on, friends, shows whom we're loyal to. When God's professed people turn to sun worship, who are they loyal to? And when they did that, how did they treat God's Sabbath day? In Ezekiel 20, verse 13, it says, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbath they greatly polluted. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. 
Verse 16, because they despised my judgments and walked not in my statutes. And he says this every time. They didn't walk in them. They didn't walk in his statutes. That means they didn't live it, right? But they polluted my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Verse 24, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths. You see a theme here? They polluted the, my Sabbaths. And their eyes were after their father's idols. When they turned to sun worship, the people began to pollute the Sabbath. That word for pollute also means to profane or to break. So in turning to idol worship of the sun, they also transgressed the Sabbath command. They transgressed also the second and seventh commandments. The worship of idols committing adultery, fornication. You can see that throughout their history. God's followers always kept the Sabbath, and whenever there was apostasy, they would worship false gods and profane the Sabbath by keeping Sunday, as well as committing idolatry and whoredom. This is because it's the day that Lucifer has chosen as his day. It's his mark. And when you look back, you can see that there was a, a definite line of demarcation between who God's true people were and who the pagans were. There was a line. You didn't get confused. But it wasn't, and it was that way until, and we talked about this earlier, uh, until you get into the early centuries when the lead, that line becomes more blurred. God's people began to call Sunday the Sabbath. So the Israelites began to commit Whoredom and pollute the Sabbath. And being loving and a merciful God, He reached out to them in an effort to save them. And what message did God send to them to save them? It's the same for us today. If we go back to Ezekiel 20, verse 19, He said, I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And hallow my Sabbaths. And they shall be what? A sign. There's that line of demarcation, isn't it? It will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You see, friends, by hallowing the Sabbath, we declare that we're loyal to the Creator. And it's a sign for the entire world to see. Now, there are many true followers of God, I believe this, my whole heart, who are now worshiping on Sunday. But this will change when they hear the truth about God's holy day. They will hear... Our master, Jesus Christ, they'll hear the shepherd's voice and they'll follow him. They'll begin to worship him on the true holy day. And when Christ was on earth, I mean, were they still worshiping the sun when Christ was here? Yeah, Rome ruled the world and sun worship was their principal form of worship. But our Lord, ever our example, kept the Father's commands, which includes what? Keeping the Sabbath, isn't it? the seventh day of the week. After the Lord ascended, the church was given mighty powers to reach the world through Pentecost. But the Apostle Paul made a prediction in 2 Thessalonians that there would be a gigantic apostasy that would take place within the Christian church before the second coming of Christ. And we've covered some of this in our prophecy studies. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Verse 1, he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, 
because they were there were elders who were writing letters that disagreed with Paul and they were signing Paul's name. As that day of Christ is at hand, let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Who does what? Opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he's God. The words falling away come from the Greek word apostasia, from which we get the word apostasy in the English. It means a falling away or a departure from the truth. And so the Apostle Paul here, he warned that there would be a great apostasy before Jesus came back. And he referred to this apostasy in his last meeting with the elders there at Ephesus. We read about it in Acts chapter 20. And I want you to notice some, some interesting details about what, what Paul predicted was going to take place here. Verse 29, he said, For I know this, that after my departing shall what? Grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So we see in this passage of Scripture that the greatest danger for the Christian church was not necessarily the opposition from the pagan world outside, but from the apostasy that would take place inside. It would come from disciples speaking perverse things to draw followers away after them. There is another consideration that made this danger even more dangerous. Do you know who these words were spoken to? <laughs> well, they were spoken to the bishops, the Christian ministers, or the elders of the church. Paul said, of your own selves. That is, from among the men who had been chosen to guide and care for the church, there would be those who would pervert their calling in order to build up themselves, gather disciples around themselves. Did that happen? As stated in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, the mystery of iniquity was already working, wasn't it? Barely were the apostles dead and in the grave when this evil actually appeared in the church. From A.T. Jones's book, The Great Empires of Prophecy, he says, No sooner were the apostles removed from the stage of action, no sooner was their watchful attentions gone and their apostolic authority removed, than this very thing appeared of which the apostle had spoken. Certain bishops, in order to make easier the conversion of the heathen, to multiply disciples and by this increase their own influence and authority, began to adopt heathen customs and forms. I would recommend you get this book by E.T. Jones. The Great Empires of Prophecy. It's an incredible book. The guy was a history professor. <laughs> and he is very detailed, let me tell you. This great apostasy started, and I was talking to Bill about this earlier, it started as really a, a gigantic evangelistic campaign in order to make easier the conversion of the heathen to multiply disciples. They lowered the standard, you see, for church fellowship. And within 20 years of the apostles' death, the perversion of the truth of Christ had become widespread. Uh, Johann von Mosheim, in his uh, ecclesiastical history, he says, It is certain that to religious worship, both public and private, many rites were added without necessity and to the offense of sober and good men. 
And he goes on and he says, the Christians were pronounced atheists because they were destitute of temples, altars, victims, priests, and all that pomp in which the vulgar supposed the essence of religion to consist. To silence this accusation, the Christian doctors, that would be the bishops and the elders and ministers, thought it necessary to introduce some external rites which would strike the senses of the people so that they could maintain themselves ready to possess those things of which Christians were charged with being destitute, though under different forms. And so the heathen religions in the early part of the second century were almost all centered around sun worship, just as they'd always been. They worshipped at the dawning of the day, facing which direction? East. And this was one of the first pagan customs that entered the Christian church. Christians began to meet at the rising of the sun on what was later called Easter Sunday. And they would say, well, this is the time when, when Christ was resurrected. And we'll teach the people that we meet at the rising of the sun, not the worship of the sun, but to worship the one who was, was raised at sunrise. Don't we hear those same things today? Von Mann. Uh, von Mosheim again. He says, Before the coming of Christ, all the eastern nations performed divine worship with their faces turned to that part of the heavens where the sun displays his rising beams. Nor is this custom abolished even in our times, but still prevails in a great number of Christian churches. <laughs> really, it pervades the Christian churches today. Friends, once you start down that, that path of compromise, it seems like it never ends. In addition to this, the day of the sun was adopted as a festival day. And the people were taught to fast on the Sabbath. Now consider the effect this would have on, let's say, little children growing up. If every Sabbath there was little to eat, but on Sunday you could have all that you pleased, well then which day would you learn to love and look forward to? Sunday. Exactly. And as these customs spread and such half-pagan disciples were multiplied, so did the number of pagan practices become introduced into the church. Jesus gave us warning about this. He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. He was talking about his professed church, wasn't he? And Paul said, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And now it was the custom of the Jewish Christians to remember the death and resurrection of Christ during the, the Pascha or Passover. Passover, which was on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish year, would fall on different days of the week, every, every year. But Rome, as Rome adopted this holiday, it ruled that celebration must always be on what? On a Sunday. It was on this point that the Bishop of Rome made one of the first claims at absolute power in his attempt to compel obedience to the church. And we don't know exactly when that began, but it was practiced in Rome uh, as early as the time of Sixtus I, who was the Bishop of Rome, 119 AD, around in that area. And because of this falling away by the church, by the end of the second century and even more in the third century, it was difficult to distinguish between paganism and this now, this kind of Christianity. You had the Jews who kept the Seventh-day Sabbath. You had some Christians that still kept the Seventh-day Sabbath. You had some Christians that kept the Seventh-day Sabbath and Sunday. And you had Christians that just kept Sunday. 
During the time of Constantine, the new developments in paganism and the apostate, paganized, you could say, sun-worshipping form of Christianity, they merged. And a new imperial universal religion was created. And what was that new religion? That new Christian religion? Yeah, exactly. Jones says in his book, he says, the epic thus formed was the epic of the papacy. And the new religion thus created was the papal religion. This was the beginning of that dark and dismal age which oppressed Europe for over a thousand years. And it was at this time in 321, try to wrap it up, I appreciate you hanging in with me, uh, that the first Sunday law was proclaimed by Constantine. Have you ever read what his proclamation was? Have you ever read it? Notice what he says. Nothing Christian about this law, is there? There's no mention of the resurrection of Christ. There's no mention of the fourth commandment. Here's what it said. Constantine, Emperor Augustus to Helpidius, on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest and all, let all workshops be closed. You see, because we want to get the family back together again. We need to have a family day every week because it's going to help the environment for one thing are you hearing some of this stuff today he says in the country however persons engaged in agriculture may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits because it often happens that another day is not so suitable for grain sowing or for vine planting lest by neglecting the proper moment for such operations the bounty of heaven should be lost Etc. That was it. Do you note that there was no reference to any scriptural reasons for keeping Sunday? Do you notice how he actually referred to that day? What do you call it? The venerable day of the sun. And so, at every step taken in adopting the forms of sun worship and the adoption of the observance of Sunday, those who remained faithful to Christ and to the truth of His Word protested that disloyalty to the fourth commandment. And when the church tried to enforce Sunday by a law of the state, the protest of those Christians became stronger than ever. And what do you think the response was? In order to accomplish her original purpose, it became necessary for that apostate Christian church to to get legislation prohibiting the observance of the Sabbath in an attempt to quench that protest. And this was done by the Council of Laodicea. The Canon 29, around the year 364 AD, here's what the Canon says. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. And if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. Okay, what is a Judaizer? Sabbath keeper. They're keeping the same day as the Jews. That was the Old Testament. Remember the Jews. Right? Oh, you take the writings too literal, Russ. What's anathema from Christ? Cut off. Cut off. Dead to him. See? During the time of Theodosius, by a law in 386 AD, civil transactions of every kind were strictly forbidden on Sunday. Civil transactions. Government shut down. 
businesses shut down. Do we see any of that happening today? Starting to see it more and more. You've heard of Sunday blue laws, right? Like you can't go and buy a car on Sunday and you can't. Why do you think that came into being? Whoever transgressed was considered guilty of sacrilege. However, there was still a problem. You know what the problem was? The church leaders found out that just having no work on Sunday did not get people to church. So the next logical step then was to compel them to be religious and devoted. Augustine, the bishop of Hippos, he said this, he said, Many must often be brought back to their Lord like wicked servants by the rod of temporal suffering before they attain the highest grade of religious development. That's right, compel. Neander, he's a historian. He said, It was by Augustine then that a theory was proposed and founded which contained the germ of that whole system of spiritual despotism of intolerance and persecution which ended in the tribunals of inquisition. You see, friends, Sunday legislation contains within it the philosophical basis for religious persecution. Don't ever forget that. Whenever Sunday or any other day legislation is enacted, persecution will follow. Because people aren't just going to go. They're going to have to be forced. And so the time came when the Roman church became so furious against God's covenant that it eventually considered any person who kept the fourth commandment in joining the observance of the seventh day Sabbath or the second commandment even, which prohibited the worship of idols, they considered it worthy of death. Death by the most cruel means that could be devised. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Remember that idol worship and the breaking of the Sabbath go hand in hand? And whoredom? We saw that with ancient Israel. Notice what Socrates said was happening in the 4th century. He said, For almost... Oh, he said, for although almost all churches throughout the world celebrate the sacred mysteries on the Sabbath of every week, yet the Christians of Alexandria and at Rome, on account of some ancient tradition, have ceased to do this. this that's very interesting. A historian in the 4th century says that the Christian churches throughout the world observe the mysteries on Sabbath except in two places. And where were those places? Probably the most paganistic, heathen places in the world. Alexandria in Rome. So friends, there is evidence stacked upon evidence that Christians in around the world, the British Isles, the Waldensians in Italy, the Albigenses in France, the, the Christians in Bulgaria, the Armenians in Turkey, people forget about them, uh, the Syrian churches, they were the ones who held on to the actual writings of the apostles. Uh, St. Thomas Christians in India, the Abyssinian Christians in Africa, Christians in China, Afghanistan, all over the world uh, uh, were Seventh-day Sabbath keepers until they were forced to go underground. And their leaders were killed in the Inquisitions and such. Why then do the majority of Christians today keep Sunday? For most, it's just because they don't know the truth. They're just following the tradition of their church without really considering why. 
They don't know the history concerning the great apostasy of the church that uh, Paul spoke of and, and the gradual change from Sabbath to Sunday because it wasn't overnight. Is it going to be that way again? And I'm not pointing fingers here. The record of this has been around long before I came upon the scene. That uh, I humbly ask that you search this thing out on your own with an open mind and an open heart and, and test what I'm saying against the Scriptures and against history. And if you do this with the aid of the Holy Spirit, always with the aid of the Holy Spirit, I know you'll come to the same conclusion because truth is truth. We're living in the last days, friends, and time is short. Let's not be caught sleeping. Let's not be caught keeping any vain traditions, but watching and praying till the Savior comes. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you that you've protected it through the ages, and we can compare it to to history. And and we can clearly see uh, the attacks against your law, and specifically the, the Sabbath, and uh, that it's one of the two institutions there uh, that you created there and gave to us at the very beginning, uh, the Sabbath day and marriage, and how Satan attacks it in so many forms through these pagan uh, and religions and false gods. We pray that we may not be deceived. Give us spiritual eyesab that we may see, that we may share this truth with others, but above everything else, Lord, fill us with the love that, uh, that uh, can only come from Thee, uh, what true love really is for You and for our fellow man. Fill us with that love that we may be the disciples of Jesus. Please continue to be with us throughout this holy day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.